Um, just a quick announcement before we get rolling in our passage today. Our, um, we uh, don't have sprouts today. Uh, one of the values that we have here at, at the garden is actually to, uh, to kind of come alongside parents in the uh, um, spiritual nurturing and upbringing of your children. And uh, um, uh, our leaders, we have leaders that uh, work hard to prepare um, to do that. And uh, unfortunately, uh, with the, some of the, our Sprout leaders today, they had a situation come up that prevented them from coming. Um, however, uh, I just want to use this time to, to say thank you to all of those uh, who, who are leaders in the children's ministry, um, the, the work that you put into it, uh, the preparation that you put into it, and uh, each week that we do have children's ministry, I can guarantee that your children are, uh, are receiving milk and, uh, and even some meat. So let's just give our Sprout workers a round of applause. Um, and your children will remain in here today. Um, your children have the uh, very special blessing of listening to me. Amen. Which my daughters are thrilled for. Amen? <laughs> All right. Um, we brought this bad boy in because my wife said I kind of go up and down too much with, uh, so there's, that's why we have this. Matthew chapter 5, go ahead and turn there with me. That's where we're at, Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> uh, if you need a Bible, there are some Bibles in the back uh, foyer on the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this, this time that we can just simply come together as a family, as brothers and sisters, uh, as, as broken sinners who are uh, coming together and, and just recognizing the fact that we are broken, placing our junk, placing our sin onto Christ, seeing Christ at the center of everything, at the center of all of our songs, our conversations, our prayers, our testimonies, and now our teaching uh, Lord, this is, a, this is a sweet opportunity for us to just simply be reminded of who we are all week long, to be reminded of who we are serving all week long. God, we're not, ministry isn't just something on the side that we do, but as, as Paul just so eloquently shared, it's something that we are all part of all the time, this mission that we're called into. And God, we, we need encouragement in that. We need reminders that we truly are serving a kingdom that is not of this world, that we have a king that is beyond every leader in this world. And so, God, I ask that you continue to remind us of that as we, uh, as we look into this passage, as we look into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here, and as we study uh, the sinfulness of sin, the depth of sin. We ask that you, uh, that you lead us into this with humility, um, that you remove the sort of cultural barriers uh, that we place in front of ourselves, words that we don't like, like sin and hell. Just, just remove these sort of uh, offenses. And God, I pray that as we move through this, that we see Christ, that we see your grace, that we see the life that we are called into and the life that is ours. And it's in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. So I want to draw your attention to these words of Jesus right here today in, in the Sermon 
on the Mount. Uh, this is our fourth week in the Sermon on the Mount. We began with the Beatitudes, which are sort of these upside-down values of the kingdom of God that, that is opened up, that, is, that has begun with Jesus, that will be culminated when Christ returns, or that will be consummated, rather, when Christ returns. And so we began with the Beatitudes, or Jesus, I should say, began with the Beatitudes, saying these are the values of the kingdom. They're upside down. They're not like the values that drive this world. And so then after that, we looked at the rest of his introduction, which is telling us who we are. He says, you are what? You remember? Salt. And you are? Light. Good. And how are you salt and light? We got it then into the commandments, through being obedient to the commandments. Through having, he says, a righteousness that is beyond the Pharisees. And what does that mean? Well, the Pharisees had a righteousness that only looked at the external. The Pharisees had a righteousness that only looked on the outside, the outside actions. And Jesus says, you need a righteousness that like transform, transforms you from the inside out. Like you need a new heart, essentially. You need to be washed, cleansed from the inside out. So that was Jesus' introduction. Now what Jesus is doing, and I want to kind of give you the framework for where we're going here um, before, we, before we read it. What Jesus is doing now is he's giving us six different applications of that teaching, all right? He's going to give us six, he's going to go through the laws, six different commands that we find in the law, and he's going to show us the, the meaning of those commands and, and what it means to apply that into our life as a citizen of the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at two of them today. We're going to look at anger or murder, and we're going to look at lust or adultery. And so if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 20, uh, or through, through 30 is where we are going to kind of camp out today. So read along with me, uh, or follow along with me as I read. He says this, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say this to you. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So let me show you here what, what Jesus is doing. Look at that first line in verse 21. I want to draw you to these words. He says, you've heard it said or you've heard that it was said, to those of old. He's referring here to those of the, within the Old Covenant, the law of Moses. He's here drawing out these, these commandments of God that we find in the Old Covenant, in the law of Moses, or the Ten Commandments, which we read this morning. And 
Uh, and as he's drawing these out, what he's, what he's uh, trying to do is uh, contrast the true meaning of the law with what was being passed for religious activity and work during that day. So, for instance, the Pharisees. And if, if you're new to Christianity, uh, um, when we use the word Pharisees, just simply think religious leaders. All right? I'm going to use the word Pharisees a couple times in this sermon. Just think simply religious leaders in Jesus' day. Everybody cool, on that? cool with that? So the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day would focus on external actions alone, the outward actions, okay? So sin was defined by, not so much the heart, it was defined by the things that you do, all right? The things that you do is how they would define sin. So sin then wasn't just simply, the, like, or wasn't, wasn't the, the depth of darkness in our souls, our intentions, our thoughts, our dreams, our aspirations, why we do what we do. But sin was just simply the things that you did. Now, we are sort of 2,000 years removed from this, correct? What's surprising to me is that humans haven't changed that, very, uh, that much. I mean, we still pretty much, even in Christian churches, we still pretty much look at the outside. We look at the external. We minimize sin. We just simply say, as long as I'm not doing dot, 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 then I'm okay. Or if I'm not doing dot, 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 and someone else is, we can slam them, talk bad about them, stone them, because we're focusing on the external and not the internal. One pastor said this. He's, he told me that he doesn't use the word sin anymore because people don't think that they're sinners or they don't think sin is really that big of a deal. All right? So in the churches, you might find that people do believe that they're sinners and they will talk about sin, but it, it's sort of just like this, uh, this sort of bad things that we do that we are embarrassed by. All right? But the depth of sin, the weight of sin is rarely felt. It's r- rarely seen. Um, I saw a, a uh, preview for a new movie coming out called The Purge. Anybody seen the preview for that? So here's, here's the premise for The Purge. America reborn unemployment at 1%, crime at an all-time low, because one night a year, all crime is legal. That's how the preview begins. And then the first phrase that you hear is, tonight, it's a father talking to his son, he says, tonight, he's trying to explain it, tonight allows for a release. So here's the premise of this movie, all right? America, the beautiful, great, no no crime, unemployment, and an all-time low. Why? Because one night a year, the law is lifted. Everything that was illegal is now legal. You can do whatever you want. And what's on the inside, sort of, it's it's a time to get that, that darkness on the inside to just simply get that out, to let it go. Let the darkness that's within come out. Now, why do we love these movies? Why do we, we're so interested by that. And I've made this argument before and I want to make it again, all right? 
We love these movies because they show us something that we already know to be true. What they show us is this. They show us that if the law were to be lifted, if, if the things that constrain our evil actions okay, were to be lifted, no more consequences to your actions. Uh, let's, let's, just, let's include social guilt as well. All right, embarrassment in front of family members and friends. Like, let's just say all of that for 12 hours is gone. What would happen? The world would erupt into a state of hell. Chaos. Evil would erupt. You see, we kind of all know this to be true deep within us, that there is this, there is this sense where we say, well, the world is not that bad. I mean, you talk about people being sinners. You talk about people needing a Savior. I mean, really? Do they really need a Savior? And we look around and we're like, you know, we're not going around killing people. We're not, everybody's not going around raping people. It's not that, not that bad. Well, why? Why don't we do some of these things? You see, it's because we have things that constrain us, like law, consequences, death row, uh, embarrassment with friends and family. Like fleshly reasons we don't want to follow through with the darkness that is inside of here. So if everything was legal, what might you do? You see, this is the premise of the movie, and we like these because it shows us something that we kind of already know. Now what I want, my, my goal today, what I want to show you is that Jesus is talking about real life here, all right? He's talking here about uh, something that we, in a sense, already know is there. And he's putting it into words, and he's, he's naming it. He's showing us what this thing is and how destructive this thing is. So that's my goal, that you see that he's speaking into real life, but also I want, I want you to see why Jesus is saying these things. My goal is that by the end of this, that you will see this picture of humanity and the darkness and the, the depth of sin of humanity, but also that you will contrast that with who Jesus is and the life that we have in Jesus. So here what we have, if you look at your passage in your Bibles, we have these two applications, these two examples, if you would. Uh, so he's, he first begins with murder, and then he goes into adultery. Now this is, this is the way we're going to kind of do this today. If you can picture in your mind, parallel, all right? The first section, murder, and, and talking about the depth of that sin. And then come over here, adultery, and then he's going to talk about the depth of adultery. And what we're going to do is we're going to find parallels between these two sections that teach us, yes, about murder and anger, and yes, about adultery and lust, but even more so and deeper, it's going to teach us about the sinfulness of sin. And so what we're going to see is four different parallels. I'm going to give them to you right now, and then we're going, to, we're going to work through them. Four different parallel lessons, if you would, that we see in these two teachings. One, number one, it's the sinfulness of sin. The depths of sin. The depth of sin. Number two, it's the destruction of sin. Number three, the fight against sin. And number four, the need for grace. So let's dive into it. Number one, the sinfulness of sin. When we look at these and we parallel these, both both of these teachings begin with a commandment from the Old Testament, from the law, from the Ten Commandments specifically. So look at verse 21. 
He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he names here the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, at the very center of our understanding of our doctrine of humanity is this belief that humans are created in the image of God. So in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, it says that murder is essentially wrong because what you're doing is you're destroying the image of God. So murder is not just wrong because you took an innocent life. It's not just wrong because you took a brother or a sister or a father or a mother. Murder is at its core, it's a sin against God because you have taken what is an image of God and you have become more powerful over that and you have destroyed that image of God. So murder is wrong. Everybody clear on that? Do we have any questions? Murder is wrong? All right, if you disagree, let's talk in the foyer afterward. I don't think we have to go any more into that. Murder is wrong. But look what Jesus does here. Murder is wrong. Everybody, by the way, the Pharisees would get that. They would say, okay, I'm not going to kill anybody as long as I can go to, go to trial and stand before the council, stand in the judgment, and be declared innocent of murder, then I'm fine, right? I'm fine. That's all that matters is sort of this outward action. What Jesus says is, not really. We've got to go deeper than that. So, so look at it. Look at verse 22. He says this, But I say to you. Now Jesus is not contrasting the law versus his teaching, okay? Common, common problem here in some interpretations of this is that Jesus is saying, don't listen to the Old Testament. I'm giving you something entirely new and different. That's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is he's contrasting what was a bad interpretation of the law by the Pharisees with the actual meaning of that commandment, all right? So he says, You've heard it said, don't murder, and you get that. I, okay, cool, you're not murdering anyone. But I say to you, and now he goes deeper. He's going to show them here the depth of sin. Look at it. He gives, us, or he gives three different examples to show the depth of sin. He says, whoever is angry with his brother will be, says, liable to judgment, meaning the same consequences, okay? In the spiritual world, in the kingdom of God, it's like the same deal, all right? Now, we have to remember he's talking here about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the world. Different consequences in the kingdom of the world. Are we all tracking on that? When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's like the same deal, all right? There, it's just as damning. So he says, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, which that is the word raka. Um, everybody say raka. All right, you just insulted me, okay? I don't actually think insult is the best interpretation. Uh, raka sort of is this term that communicates an absolute worthlessness of an individual. So if you were to say, Joel, you are worthless. You are the scum of this earth. That's raka, all right? Whoever says raka will be liable to judgment. Whoever says, you fool which is a word that we sort of throw around in this context here. It's, it's, it's a, deeper, uh, a deeper meaning, which, which is sort of placing the blame on someone, calling someone uh, the, the problem of society. 
So if you were to say to me, Joel, you are the problem in Baltimore. You are the problem in your home. You are the problem in this church. That's saying, you fool. You guys tracking here? So you fool is sort of like hatred in your heart for someone finding a word. These things are as damning, he says, as murder. It's made of the same stuff. You see, unlike Jesus, who had righteous, perfect anger, I mean, it's, Jesus had anger. He called the Pharisees fools, and rightly so. Do you see what I'm saying? The, the judge pronouncing a judgment, saying, you are the problem here. Righteous anger, but for what? Jesus had anger for the things that distorted the gospel. He had anger for the things, uh, religious leaders taking advantage of the poor for their own benefit in the temple, turning over the money changers' tables. Of course he did. But see, our problem is that we don't get angry at sin. We don't get angry because someone's distorting the gospel. We don't get angry because religious leaders are taking advantage of the poor. We get angry because someone distorts our image. We get angry because someone insults us, because someone uh, speaks evil of, not God, but us. Do you see how this becomes idolatry? And so we get angry, raka, fool, and what we're doing is, you know, murder is destroying the image of God, anger, raka, fool. These things are a desire to destroy the image of God, a hatred toward the image of God. A belittling in our minds of the image of God, devaluing the image of God. And so here Jesus is saying, look, it's not just, sin is not just the actions that you do. It's deeper than that. It's, it's, it's anger. It's raka. You fool. Now, I wonder if we really understood this, if we really took this seriously, I wonder how this would affect our relationships. I wonder how this would affect people that insult us. I wonder how this would affect people that talk behind our backs. I wonder how this would affect our, uh, our relationships with those who we might consider our enemies. I wonder how this might affect the way we speak to our children when they're disobedient. The way we view our parents who have hurt us. See, friends, we are called to a life of holiness and bitterness, hatred, and anger is not congruent with this life of the citizen of the kingdom of God. He does this again with adultery. Look at it. We're going to parallel. Um, look, look, look at it. Verse 27, he starts out by saying um, that you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. So that, that is the seventh commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Um, again, the Pharisees would pride themselves in the fact that they have not committed adultery. That they're, they're not messing around in that way. To the point that they would actually pick up stones and be ready to stone the woman who did commit adultery. Do you remember this story? So they're, they're priding themselves. We don't commit adultery. Look at us. Let's stone the woman that does. Jesus stops it. Why? Why does He stop that stoning? Why does he stop that stoning? Look at it. He says this, But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus isn't, uh, isn't changing 
the law, he's showing us what the law actually meant. I mean, the Pharisees would conveniently disconnect the seventh commandment, you shall not commit, uh, commit adultery, they would disconnect it from the tenth commandment that says don't covet your neighbor's wife. They would conveniently ignore Proverbs chapter, uh, my mind's blank, chapter 6, verse 25, which clearly condemns lust. And Jesus is saying, no, like, it's not just the outward action. It's not just, so here they are about to stone the woman who's caught in adultery. Jesus stops it. I wonder why. Could it be that he stops it because he saw the hearts of these men and he knew that they they had already imagined what it would have been like to commit adultery with her. They've already imagined. They've already played it out in their minds. See guys, this is the subtlety of sin. We we convince ourselves that it's okay to imagine things. It's okay to play things out in our minds as, as long as we don't actually commit the dirty deed. So often you might hear something like, I I slipped up a little bit. I, I, I looked at some stuff online, but at least I didn't commit adultery. At least I haven't done that. Well, Jesus would say, you're, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Because while, yes, adultery, what is adultery? Adultery is taking what's not yours, all right? It's, it's not being satisfied with what God has given you, and it's saying, I want something that's not mine. And it's taking it, all right? So it's, it's uh, committing a sin against the person that you take, against their spouse or their future spouse. It's a committing a sin against you. It's primarily com- committing a sin against God because, again, this is idolatry. This is placing yourself above the mind of God, saying, I want what is not mine. Now, what is lust? Lust is the same thing, just committed in our minds. It's seeing something that's not yours to see and taking it, enjoying it, imagining it. It's reading something that, that, it, that allows our minds to just go on and imagine things that are not ours. Imagine situations that are not ours. So Jesus says, no. Whoever has no sin... Cast the first stone. He's not, in, in, in that sense, in no way is he minimizing adultery. What he's doing is he's increasing what sin actually is. He's showing, like, go ahead. Go ahead. Because if we start stoning, we'll, we'll all be dead. Except, I mean, the one person left would be Jesus. The only person there that can throw a stone is Jesus. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever has lusted, after a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, sin, guys, is much more than just action. Sin is the rot underneath the actions. It's why we do what we do. It's the things that we would do had, if consequences were not there. Sin is what lies underneath. It's our intent. It's our motivations, it's our imaginations. 
And lust is that sin committed in the heart. It's saying I'm not content with what God has given me. I want more. I want more pleasure. I want more things. I want more stuff. And I take it as if it's mine. And I enjoy what is not mine. You see, there is, uh, let me me say this, If if you're married, there is one person who is to arouse you, period, all right? Like, marriage is not an answer for sexual sins. Marriage is like a new kind of chastity. If you are single, through God-given, grace-driven effort, you are called to remain celibate, to sacrifice, to find God as your all. To say, you know what? I have these cravings, I have these desires. But I will place nothing above God. I will place nothing above God. It's at this point I ask, with great shame, who of us in here can say that we have not committed the sin of murder? Who of us in here can say that we have not committed the sin of adultery? Now, this brings us to our second parallel, which I want you to see. Um, It's the destruction of sin. So not only is sin there and it's deep and it's sort of set into our being and into our bones, but I want you to see how destructive sin actually is. Look Look at these two sections, these two teachings, anger and lust. And what we see here is in both of these, we see hell mentioned. So look at it in verse verse, verse, uh, 22. You fool. Whoever says, whoever's angry, liable to judgment, insults his brother, liable to the council. You fool. You'll be liable to the hell of fire. Everybody say hell. All right. Look at verse 30. And if you cut off your right hand, or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body thrown into hell. Now, that word hell right there is the word Gehenna. It literally refers to this trash dump outside of the city where people would take their trash, they would throw their trash out there, there would be dogs out there eating at the trash, snakes, it would be nasty, there was a constant fire that would constantly be burning to consume the trash. So Jesus is pointing, essentially, to the city dump and saying, this is where your sin is taking you. Now, know this. Whenever Jesus uses a a picture, whenever he uses an image to refer to something, it always is a very small glimpse into a greater reality. So as an example, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Well, that doesn't mean that Jesus actually is walking around with a shepherd's staff herding sheep. It's a a small image, the good shepherd. Small image to refer to the much greater reality 
of who Jesus is and how much he loves you, all right? Same thing with Ghana. Same thing with the city dump. It's a very small image to refer to a much greater reality of hell. I heard someone say recently, if we minimize hell, then we minimize the cross. We have to understand how destructive sin actually is in our lives. C.S. Lewis put it this way once. He said, he said, hell begins with a groan and a grumble. And it's not long before that grumble increases and it's at some point and that, that grumble is all that you are. Sin is destructive. Sin, you could say, begins with lust in your heart. Or hell, rather, begins with lust. It begins with anger in your heart. It begins with hatred and bitterness in your heart. And then eventually, that's all you have left. You're left with lust. You're left with anger. You're left with hatred. You're left with bitterness. And God's wrath burns against these things. And hell then is being placed under the wrath of God who hates anger, hates lust, hates bitterness forever and ever and ever. That is hell. That is the destructive nature of sin in your life. It destroys you little by little. Sin is so much more than just simply outward actions that we're embarrassed by. Things that we need to clean up in our life. Sin is the root problem in our life. It's deeper than that. It's the thoughts. It's our minds. Sin is the image of God not cherished in our lives. It's, it's caring for ourselves more than we care for the glory of God. Sin is the love of God that is not active within us and not pouring through us into other people's lives. Sin is minimizing the value of another's life. Sin is the disregard for creation and the things that God has created with His very own hands. Sin is our desires and our intentions and our imaginations. Sin is a discontent with what God has given us. It's a desire, a lust for more, more flesh, more money, more things. Sin is idolatry. It's placing ourselves above God. It's finding our happiness and our satisfaction and our joy in anything other than God. Sin is saying that Christ is not enough for me. Sin is much deeper than our actions. All right, the third parallel here, when we look at these two sections, let me give you a third parallel. It's this. We see here a fight against sin. All right, so we see the sinfulness of sin, the depth of it. We see the destruction of sin, and now the fight against sin. Now, something that makes sense to me is that, that I, th I think as Jesus was preaching through this sermon, there was, a, there was a sense of it, there was a place where Jesus actually believed that we would take some of this stuff and apply it to our lives, right? That we would actually listen to what he's saying and seek to be, through grace-driven effort, obedient to his commands. So Jesus says at the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples, teach them to do all things that I've commanded you. Huh, right here. All right? So what does he say? Jesus is very practical. 
He gets very practical with us right here. And I want to point out these practical ways that Jesus tells us to fight against these sins. John Piper put it this way once. He said, I hear a lot of Christians whining about sin in their life. But I see very, very few Christians going to war against sin in their life. So we want to go to war against sin in our life. And Jesus gives us three tactics, if you would, modes of attack against these sins of anger and lust. Are you ready for them? Hopefully this will be helpful. <clears throat> three different modes of attack. Number one, or, I'm sorry, there's two for anger, there's one for lust, all right? Number one for anger. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and first be reconciled to your brother. What he's saying is this. Reconciliation with your brother is more important than your religious activity. So check this out. I mean, this is very practical. The discipline that you guys have of coming to church every week, coming to sing songs, to give your offering, coming to take communion. It is a discipline that we have in our lives which demands that we first reconcile with our brother and sister. So he's saying, like, I don't care about your singing. I don't care about how much you put in the offering box because you have bitterness and anger and hatred in your heart. So don't be coming to me doing some kind of religious good looking for me to just bless you this week. Because you have bitterness. You have anger. You have unresolved unforgiveness that's deep within you. In Amos, God says, through the prophet Amos, he says that I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies, he says, are a stench. Imagine if God were to say that to us. Your assemblies are a stench. He says, your songs are just like noise to me. Why? Because they had bitterness, because they had anger, because they were not loving their neighbor. And if we're not loving our neighbor, then how can we love God? So Jesus here is giving us something very practical. Before you go to offer your offering, before you sing your song, before you raise your hand in praise, before you give your tithe, before you... Take communion, reconcile with your brother, examine your heart, ask yourself, is there anything between me and another brother or sister? And reconcile with them. Ask for forgiveness. This is very practical. The sheer discipline of worship demands that we reconcile. The second practical mode of attack that he gives us is in the next verse. He says, come to term, terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. <clears throat> and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. This is like uber practical right here, okay? If you're walking to court with somebody who has an offense against you, before you get to court, reconcile with them. It's like, oh man. I never thought of that one before. So it, listen, I mean, let's just take it face value, practical application. Listen, if someone has an accusation against you because you were mean, because you spoke in a way that you should not have to them, because of your anger, because of your bitterness toward them, 
if someone has an accusation against you, before they take it to court, or let's put it into, into our understanding of how this works, before they take it to the church, meet with them. Reconcile with them. Talk with them. Call them on the phone and say, I understand that I've wronged you. I understand that I should not have spoken that way to you. That I called you Raka, fool. That I've harbored bitterness against you. Reconcile with them before they take it to the church. And by the way, learn two words. I'm sorry. All right? Like, stop. We've got to stop defending ourselves. Remember, blessed are the meek. Remember how we interpreted that? Those that don't defend themselves. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Two more words. Forgive me. Reconcile with your brother before they take it to the court. Amen? Practical, isn't it? The third one, let's go into lust. We're going to parallel this. He has a practical sort of fight against lust. Look at it. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better to lose one of your bodies than your whole body be thrown in hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Listen, the right side of the body was seen to be priority. It was seen to be most important. It was seen to be the most powerful. This is why Jesus sits at the right hand of God. It's the symbol of power and importance. What he's saying here, first of all, is not that we should take this literally, all right? And I don't think we have to say that, but just, just in case you were thinking of gouging this afternoon, he didn't mean for us to take this literally. And let me say this. If we did take this literally, I really think Jesus would like throw up his hands and be like, I don't know what to do with you. You actually thought I meant that literally? Yeah, I mean, I'm going, I'm going against like the external stuff. I'm trying to get you guys to see that it's not the external. It's the heart that's the problem. I didn't mean for you to actually cut your hand off. You're missing it. But what he's saying is this. There is a practical piece of this. What he's saying is this. It, to, to fight against lust, there are times where we have to sacrifice. And the sacrifice is worth it. There are things in our lives, good things, that we must cut off. There are important things in our lives that we have to, at times, get rid of. And the sacrifice is worth it. Sacrifice opportunities. Sacrifice jobs that cause us to think about a certain person. Sacrifice relationships. Sacrifice tools that we have. Sacrifice technology that we have. And he's saying this. He's saying this. The sacrifice is worth it. This, don't you realize what you have as an inheritor of the kingdom of God? Don't you realize that the meek will inherit the earth? So it's worth it. You can get rid of good things now. It's okay. It's worth it. To sacrifice having internet on your phone for some of you very well could be worth it. To sacrifice an intimate relationship and live a life of celibacy is a sacrifice that is worth it because we have all that we can think of. The meek will inherit the earth. The kingdom is ours. Christ is ours. The sacrifice is worth it. Now there's another angle at this though that I want to point out. As Jesus says to cut off, gouge out your eye, cut off, 
cut off your hand. I, I do think Jesus is also trying to make a very deep, profound point here. He's talking to people, or he's at least dressing, addressing people, who are focusing on the external. They're focusing on the letter of the law, just simply not doing or doing the, these external actions. And I think there's a sense here where Jesus is saying this. All right, fine. If you want to focus on the external, then let me give you some external things to do. If you're just going to focus on these external actions, then fine. Here are some external things to do. Gouge out your eye. If it's just an external problem that you have, then cut your hand off. You see, there's almost like this humorous, kind of ironic hit here. Look, if you're going to take it external, then just take it external and start chopping And here's what you would find. We can start gouging. We can take our eyes out. We can cut our hands off our arms. We can pull out our tongue because we can't control it, all right? We can start chopping things. And what we'll be left with is like an eyeballless, tongueless head, all right? With maybe a shoulder and a heart, a dirty, perverted heart that's still beating and a mind that is dark and needs to be renewed You see, what Jesus is pointing us here is to something much deeper than just simply external change. What he's saying is this. There's got to be something more. There's got to be a deeper deeper type of change. And this brings us here to our, our, um, our fourth parallel lesson, and that is this. Both of these teachings demand grace. Both of these teachings demand that God is a God of grace if we have any hope in this world. Both of these teachings demand that we need a Savior. Now this is why, and we've said this a number of times, probably every week so far, this is why we can't just simply read the Sermon sermon on the Mount and try to extract ethical and moral principles from it and then try to create good citizens in the church and in the world. That would be destructive. That would be damaging. That would miss the entire point. What Satan would love more than anything is for a group of people to take the Sermon on the Mount and say, we're going to live by it. We're going to learn the ethical principles. We're going to apply the moral principles all around us. And they miss Christ. They don't see Christ as their only hope. And they, through applying moral and ethical principles, build up a sense of righteousness within themselves. You see, the sermon is designed to make us fall to our knees and cry out, God, I need help. I need mercy. I need a Savior. In Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity, he quotes a, a pastor from back in the day named Donald Bar- Barnhouse from Philadelphia. And Barnhouse speculates what it would look like if Satan took over a city. And, and you know, if you've been in church for many years, you probably grew up in some church that would talk about Satan taking over a city and everybody's in the bars and pornography and that's Satan taking... Well, this is the way Barnhouse sort of imagined what it would look like if Satan took over a city. I think it's fascinating. Listen, he says this. He says, if Satan really took over a city, all of the bars would be closed, all right? Pornography would be banished, pristine streets filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no more swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not 
preached. Do you see what he's saying? I mean, if we just simply try to take this and create a pristine society out of it, or a nice people where we're all trying to follow the ethical principles, and we don't see Christ as our only hope, I mean, that's, that's a tool of the enemy. I mean, if we could put this into our terms today in Baltimore, if, if Satan were to take over Baltimore, we could put it like this, all the houses would be fixed up. There wouldn't be an abandoned house in the city. There wouldn't be a rat in the city. Everybody say amen. There, all of the drug, drug addicts would, would find help and would, would, would be clean. The drug dealers would all become pharmacists. Baltimore Street, the block, would be closed down. Churches would be filled every Sunday with people trying to live out the moral and ethical principles of the Sermon on the Mount, and Christ would not be seen as our only hope. You see, this is designed to not make us just sort of build up our own righteousness. This is designed to knock out our legs that we fall on our knees and we cry out, Lord, have mercy. I am a sinner. You see, Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with this. The person who enters into the kingdom is a person of spiritual poverty. And the rest of the sermon is designed to make us spiritually poor people. To rob us of any thought that we can have righteousness on our own. That we would cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here, with understanding that now, lies the death of sin. How do we conquer sin in our life? How do we conquer lust? How do we conquer anger, bitterness, hatred? How do we do these things? This is where it is. It's when we understand grace. You see, law never motivates people to holiness. Only grace can do that. Why do we say that we are now free to be obedient? Free Because we have grace. Let me illustrate for you how grace motivates people toward holiness. Imagine with me that there is a father who buys an iPad for his teenage son. And the teenage son is, is reckless. He's a rebellious, sort of angry teenage son. They never exist, do they? None of us would have fit that category. <clears throat> Father buys his son a present and got, gets him an, him an iPad. Now let's say a month goes by and his, this child's recklessness destroys, shatters his iPad. In his anger and in his own frustration and hatred for himself, he finally shows his dad who bought him the gift and he says, look at it, I, it's ruined. I don't even have my iPad anymore. The father simply responds with this. Get in the car. They walk out, they hop in the car together, and the father drives him to the Mac store. They walk in, and the father buys him a new iPad. At which point, the son has a hard heart of stone which breaks. And he says, I don't deserve I don't deserve this kindness. And tears drench his face. Now, let me ask you this question. Does the son now want to please his father more or less? More. You see how grace motivates us? 
Grace motivates us to want to please. Grace shows us the love of our Father. And it motivates us to want to please our Father. Now, we could have told that story another way. We could have said this. We could have said, son brings the iPad to the Father, and the Father goes ballistic. And he's like, oh, and puts his head in his hands, and he's like, he's like, you know, how could you do this? How could you, how could you be so reckless? This is not what a son of mine would do. Now, how would that son respond then? Well, he may for a while try to change some actions. Why? Because now he's trying to earn back his father's approval. He's trying to earn back his place as a son in whom the father is well pleased. Guys, there's a lot of Christians that see our father in heaven that way. We see our father as a father who puts his head in his hands and says, that is not the way one of my kids acts. And then we work to earn our sonship and our daughtership back. But the story of the gospel, the story of Christ, is that we, yes, we have shattered. We have been reckless. We've been reckless with our emotions. We've been reckless with our, 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 our lust. We've been reckless with our anger and our bitterness, and we've smashed it. We've ruined it in our recklessness, in our irresponsibility. Yet our Father has put us in His car, and He's driven us to the Mac store, and He's bought us a new heart. He's bought us a new life, a new mind. He's shown us grace. Now, are we more, do we we have a greater desire now to please the Father because of His grace? The answer is yes. You see, this is how grace motivates us toward obedience. It's how grace motivates us toward holiness. And only grace can motivate us toward this kind of holiness. What Jesus wants you to hear is this. You are indeed smashed. You are indeed cracked. Your sin has indeed just driven deep nails into your soul and it's there and lust and anger and bitterness and hatred have smashed you. Yet He wants you to see Him. He wants you to contrast that with Him. The one who lived a perfect life. The one who was angry and sinned not. The one who, yes, was a man and was also tempted sexually, yet never lusted. The perfect life. Who went to the cross, and on the cross He bled and He died for you. You see, when our Father took us to buy us a new life, it cost Him something. It was very costly. It cost more than an iPad. It cost His very own Son. And for the Son, for Jesus Christ, it cost Him His very own blood as His blood was poured out for the remission of your sins to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He saved us. On the cross, He took your anger. On the cross, He took your lust. He took the guilt of your hatred. He took your perversion. He took your murder. He took your adultery. And you were given His righteousness. You were given a clean slate. You were given a new mind. A new heart. Christ took it. He died for you. He sent His Spirit to fill you. How now shall we live? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this 
time that we could just come together around this word. And we do pray that you spoke this morning, that, that my voice at the end of the day will not be remembered or heard, but that your truth will have moved in our hearts deeply. God, I pray that, that those here this morning who, who, who do not have a relationship with you, who are in their sins, I pray that they will see Christ, that they will trust in Christ, that they will look to Christ this morning, that they will find Christ as their only hope, their only satisfaction, their only joy. I pray for those who are struggling, God, and with temptation toward anger, toward bitterness, toward hatred, toward lust, toward murder, toward adultery. We pray for grace for them. We pray that you strengthen them, that you encourage them, that you help them fight, that you remind them that their sacrifice is indeed worth it. God, we pray that these, these truths are sealed in our hearts and in our minds, that they work in us throughout this coming week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.